I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And this week, we're going to begin discussing Ernest J. Gaines' A Gathering of Old Men. Is it Ernest J. Gaines or Ernest J. Gaines's? What do you say when you're speaking out loud? Because I, there's a, you can follow the rule based oh, on the yeah. particular style guide for that possessive S. But do you right. say the, or is it Ernest J. Gaines, A Gathering of Old Men? I think it's just Ernest J. Gaines. Not Ernest J. Gaines. That's what, that, right. That's just too complicated. Yeah, it's a bit it feels much. right to just say Ernest Gaines, A Gathering of Old Men. Yeah. Okay. Or you could say A Gathering of Old Men by Ernest J. Gaines, and then one, you just sidestep the whole issue. One could do that, yeah. but one would have to have thought of that before opening one's mouth to, to describe mm. what we're talking about. And to announce this, a podcast. Let this, this one, be a lesson. Plan this ahead. one did not think about saying how exactly to say it. So, so this is a novel that was written, or at least was published in 1983. Um, what do you all know about Ernest J. Gaines? Nothing. I know nothing about Ernest J. Gaines. I am Ernest appalled that I know book. nothing because this book is so good. Why it's have really I not good, heard of isn't this it? Book. Yeah, we I'm, were we've been texting how we're kind of all in on this book, or at least that was the phrase I used. I don't want to speak for the two of you. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. We all said that. Well, we David, all liked how, that. David, you were the the advocate for adding this book to the season. What did you know about it? So he, he died in November of 2019, November 5th. So coming up on two years ago. And, Guy Fox um, Day. What? It's Guy Fox Day in England, November oh, 5th. Right. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. True. All true. Right. Gunpowder plot. So, totally not anything related to Americana and why we all ought to know about Ernest Gaines. Yeah. Not related at all. So um, I had read his last book. A less, no. Um, it was uh, The Tragedy of Brady Sims which was 2017 and a lesson before dying was nominated for the Pulitzer prize. But this one, uh, which was the one before that Wendell Berry had talked about and Berry uh. was friends with Ernest J. Gaines. And I believe they went to Stanford together at, and mm. were they, I think they were at the Stegner fellowship at Stanford. I think you're um, right. So that would have been, that was the Ken Kesey, Larry McMurtry, I think maybe even Carson McCullers, Wendell Berry, Ernest J. Gaines. Like that would, they would, that was the class together. The all star team. Yeah. Class. Yeah. It's kind of like the podcast. <laughs> kind of like the podcast. Like David Kern, Heidi White, and Tim McIntosh. Yeah. You <laughs> said it. I didn't, I didn't like not that say at it. all. It's nothing at all like that. It's it's yeah. I'm, yeah. You also. You, I thank you for correcting that because I wouldn't want people to think that we actually thought of ourselves. No. But since we're here talking about it, which of us is Wendell Berry? Which of us is Ken Kesey? <laughs> Just kidding. Don't answer that. So, so I knew about it from that. I very much enjoyed uh, the Brady Sims book. And when he passed away, I thought, man, we've got to read something by Ernest J. Gaines on the podcast. And, you know, we candidly, we had discussed wanting to do books by more people of color. And it seemed like the right time to do, to do this book, especially because Wendell Berry had just, yeah. you know, some, I was 2018 when I was at his house and he's telling me, Ernest J. Gaines, this, you got to read this guy. And then I saw another interview where he mentions Ernest J. Gaines. And so it just, you know, it just added up. Um, and this, this particular book was one that 
he had mentioned. So we're going to talk about the first 57 pages. So if you're getting ready for next week, uh, we'll be doing 58 through 109. And we've gotten several messages from people who said, oh, I already finished it, you know, or I already listened to the whole audio book. And uh, in a way, I'm not surprised because you know, that kind of surprises it, me. It, so it surprises you. Why is that? You're not surprised, but it does surprise me because while I'm enjoying the book, I, f- I, I find the multiple perspectives to kind of like, it slows me Are you me reading down it or listening to it? Because kind of both. I was switching mm-hmm. back and forth. And I think it's a little bit easier for me to listen to um, because there's different actors playing the different roles on the audiobook that I got mm-hmm. from audible.com. Um, but I think when I'm reading it, it's a little bit harder for me at the, in the first couple pages of a new section to hear the new voice. And then I kind of gradually get accustomed to it and the reading goes more quickly. But mm. every time we change, it bogged me down. Did it bog you guys down? Did you slow up when you changed a section and thus changed a narrator? Not, not at all. That's why I was asking really? about the, whether you were listening or reading, but I didn't, I, yeah. I've been reading. And so it just feels like a really clean break from one, one chapter huh. to the next. Um, I, I just, yeah. I mean, I know we're all going to rave about it, but I just, I, I love that. I even love the pacing of that. The yeah, so shift. I, I have a lot of questions about point of view. And I think probably this episode will end up focusing a lot on that, especially since, you know, there's elements of the plot that haven't been revealed. So we've been introduced mm-hmm. to what five characters so far and, and the setup is happening. So this is a good time to discuss the approach to the storytelling yeah. that Gaines gives us. So Heidi, you're reading it. I'm reading it and Tim, mm-hmm. you're doing both. I have heard yeah. great things about the audiobook from a couple of the, it's our listeners. So it's you concur great. with that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I got it um, and plan to listen to it if, but I just didn't, you know, usually I listen as necessary. And this one, I had started reading it and I kind of just kind of went through it. I've read this section in two sittings and I don't know that I thought, I don't know that I got bogged down, but I, so I was telling Heidi, I have a, I have a literary pet peeve, a, a book pet peeve. That I really wanted him to tell me, me what crazy. it was, but he wouldn't. No, I, I, she, she begged he wanted me to save it for the show. Well, I also kind of just forgot. <laughs> I wasn't like being tact, you know, it wasn't like a tactical decision not to tell Heidi. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> well, I'm just kidding. Heidi, I get so many text messages from so many important people and <laughs> I just didn't, I just didn't get to it. In reality, I picked it up Fair to respond enough. and then something happened with one of my kids. And then, you know how when like you've looked at the text, the notification goes away. So then you don't have that thing to remind you that I need yes. to respond to this yes. person. Once that happened, it's just the end. So. <laughs> that is the end. We are derailed. Okay, so here, here it is. Here's my pet peeve. We don't need. We'll we'll eliminate um, the, the tension here for Heidi. I love books that change points of view, but I hate. I absolutely hate when there is no discernible difference between the voices in those points of view. Mm-hmm. So sometimes right. you'll read a book and they're going to. They're going to give you different perspectives, different characters. And it's just the same, it's just the same sounding person. Yeah. Like you, it's just the narrator, basically. It's the writer. Yeah. He has just claimed, or she has claimed that he is now writing from the perspective of somebody else. Mm -hmm. Sometimes books do this 
for part of a book or like they'll have a really firm grasp on a narrator, a particular voice for a few chapters and then they'll lose it and then they'll get it back later. But that drives me crazy. And I did not find that this book does that. I find that this book mm-hmm. is really... Go ahead. Do, do, so we're also reading... Um, Anna Karenina. Patreon yeah. supporters. We're reading Anna Karenina. And Anna Karenina's viewpoint changes fairly frequently. But that the position of the narrator in that book is a little bit distanced in a way that the the narrator in Ernest Gaines's book is not distanced, it seems to yeah. me. Like whenever we step into, for example, in Ernest Jane's book, um, Candy's point of view we are really close to Candy and we're not really close to any of the other characters. Right. But in yeah, it's first Anna person. Karenina, yeah, it's first person. It's always first person. In Anna Karenina, the narrator is a little bit distance, maybe more than a little bit distance from the action and the characters so that on occasion, the narrator can actually kind of comment yeah. on yeah, the characters. Yeah, it's third person but, but, omniscient, yeah. right? He just knows everything. Godlike like everything, but narrator. Part of what I like about Anna Karenina so much is that when he most of the time that the narrator is commenting, he's commenting from the point of view of the character that he's inhabiting. So we'll have Kitty kind of think about how she thinks about Vronsky, and we get a comment about Vronsky. But it's it's very rare yeah. that the narrator comments on Vronsky as narrator, as narrator qua narrator. Yeah, the voice. Do you that little Latin that I dropped in there, you guys? No that comments. That was so good. Oh, oh just sorry. Do we need to? David, were you trying to kind of like move past that really quickly because it was so embarrassing? I was just getting that, texts from really important people that uh, I was ignoring. Yeah, oh. I just texted. Heidi, I just texted Heidi back. <laughs> maybe, no. maybe you guys just maybe just didn't land as strongly as it could have when I said narrator. No, qua I, narrator. I was well, so Tim, you're impressed. always saying so much smart stuff. That Tim, it's like, qua Tim. Right oh, it's now. just kind of. It, yeah. It's, it's just, just kind of like. Are you, are you telling me that the brilliance has become old hat? No, it's, well, it, it's, we're it's become it, you, we're given yeah. it. Yeah. Huh. It's not old hat. It's, it's a, qua Tim. it's a, um, unique characteristic of your particular POV. Ooh, nice segue. Yeah. Well, also I just felt like we need to get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we got, we got all this point of view stuff going on here. So in this book, Tim, I, I so going back to what I was saying, I feel like when I read this, each of these POVs is unique. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like, oh, this is just Ernest J. Gaines as Candy or Ernest J. Gaines as yeah, right, Snookum right. or whatever. This is each of these people. And I wonder if the fact that he pulls that off and avoids my literary pet peeve <laughs> is what actually slows you down. And so like he has a particular I think skill. So. And so it's slowing you down a little bit because you're having a hard, well, I mean, maybe it's a good thing that you're having a hard time. Right. Like getting in and out of those characters because you have settled into that character so deeply. Completely, completely. So there's this phenomenon at my work. I do a lot of interviews with people who are giving speeches and I've noticed if it's the first time that I'm like interviewing somebody, usually at the end of the interview, I'm really tired and I also will go back and look at the transcript that I make of the interview. And the beginning of that interview, I hardly remember anything from it. And then maybe like a third of the way in, I kind of like 
I think I kind of get their speech and I get to know them a little bit better. And then my memory kind of kicks in in a way that I'm picking up a lot of other information in the first third of the interview and I just don't remember as much. And I think something like that is happening in this. It Okay. The phenomenon for me is a little bit like you go to a party. Um, you're meeting a bunch of new people. Let's imagine it's the Searcy conference and you're meeting, you meet 10 new people. Whenever I do that, I can never remember names. I remember kind of the thing, the main thing that I remember is like faces and mannerisms, but I don't hardly remember like the content of the exchange. Am I the only one that does this? Or are you guys, you guys are such savvy party goers. You probably don't suffer this. No, David usually just forgets who he's talking to at the time. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> Do it. Um, yeah, no. Um, no, I know exactly what you mean. And but do you, do you is, have the same thing, Heidi? Like when you go to a party, you're like meeting and greeting new people. Do you forget most of what's said because you're concentrating on other things? I really want to say no, because I don't usually do that, but I don't want to leave you hanging out on a limb. Yeah. So I don't know how to respond. I think lie and say that you do identify okay. with what I'm going through. I know through. exactly you, what you're yeah, And you experience the exact same thing. Heidi, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So coming back to the book. <laughs> you guys are trying so hard. As opposed to Tim, Tim therapy. Yeah, it's a little bit of Tim therapy, but I think it's related to the book. Hold on. It's related to the book. Yeah, go ahead. Heidi, go uh, Heidi just muted herself because she was laughing so much. It's related to the book. I'm saying but I want the changing, you to make that connection to the book verbally for our listeners. The, the changing point of view for me is like going to a party, no, meeting new people, and there's a, there is it, 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 it is a little bit jarring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I can see that. So, but, but, but are you, is this a complaint about the quality of the book? It's, no, it's, not at all. Not at all. You're just telling us about your experience. Yeah. I'm just telling yeah. you about my experience because you guys seemed interested, but well, I guess maybe, we are. You're, I guess honestly, maybe you're not. That's no, where I got Tim, wrong. Tim, Tim. <laughs> stop taking things so personally. So I'm not. Tim, <laughs> stop. <laughs> I'm um, having the best time on this episode. Do you, do you think we need like 10% more yelling at each other? Probably. Yeah, I think yeah. so. We should just have like a three minute segment every half hour where all mm-hmm. we do is yell at each other. And then mm-hmm. like when the timer's over, we're just back to everything normal. I would yeah. just laugh the whole time. <laughs> That's what would happen. Okay. So let's talk about these, this POV stuff because yeah. what I've been trying to think about how there's kind of three questions I wrote down that I was, that I was thinking through as I was reading. How would you describe, these are very general questions. They give you some open room. You can take them however you want. How would you describe the use of these unique point of POVs, perspectives, we'll call them, in the book? So that's a very kind of broad, big picture. How would you describe Ernest Gaines's use of unique perspectives? The second question is, does each narrator seem to have a particular role in the story? And then is there a, have you thought at all about how you would describe each narrate, each particular narrator's voice? So 
those three questions are what I was trying to sort through as I was reading. How would you describe the general overall use of multiple perspectives that Gaines use? Does each narrator or point of view have a particular role in the story? And how would you describe each narrator's voice? So we can do that in any order that's most interesting to you. We could also just talk about something completely different. But if we're going to kind of get to the bottom of how he approaches storytelling, it'd be curious to know. Now, we can't answer these questions completely because there's, spoiler alert, there are points of view that we haven't met yet. Um, And we also don't know exactly how he's going to use all these roles. Um, David, does he do this POV thing in the other, in the book that you read? Like multiple. No, I don't think he does. I was trying to remember that. And I have the book at the store, um, but I don't have it here at the house. And Mm -hmm. I, so I could, I, when I went to check, I couldn't find it, but I, I don't think he does in the same way. I, I think he's more third person. I think he has different, like limited third person where there's different. Yeah. 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 You know, not quite like this. Part of part of the question that I kept asking myself is, what made him make the decision to have these multiple points of view? Like this, the aims of his book are being served by these multiple narrators, in a way that it struck me a little bit like um, the Sound and the Fury, the William Faulkner yeah. book. He has I these thought about four Faulkner too. Very distinct so points of view, and they're all commenting on the same action or the same kind of memories. Yeah, and this this is very similar. It's all of these different points of view are commenting on this death that's taking place out in the field. So that's what everyone is preoccupied with. Um, I think what's interesting about uh, the Faulkner book, The Sound and the Fury, is that these various points of view see these memories in a very different ways. And that's part of the drama of the book is seeing these kind of like mm. really disparate views of the common memory. In this book though, there seems to be a little bit less of that. Like, of course, each of the characters has really distinct kind of like imaginings about what has happened in the field, about who's responsible, about what everybody's angle is. But it seems like there's kind of unanimity, especially among the older men, it's a gathering of old men, um, about what the meaning of the event is and what sort of stance needs to be taken. And I think that is a real interesting, that makes the multiple points of view really compelling to me because there seems already in the first 57 pages that there's a real cohesion among these older men about what needs to be done. You know? Yeah. That's interesting. They're they're After the fact, there's a cohesion about the story, even as there's a cohesion about what they need to do next in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, Exactly what I mean. Right. I have, Two comments about this. Uh, The first is I find the structure of this novel like completely compelling. Uh, It's a memory novel, so it's people looking back on something that happened, but the force of the like the energy of the novel is not backwards looking, but forwards looking. Like there, each uh, chapter is a literal movement forward represented by a different person. Mm -hmm. So in the first chapter, we know something has happened, right? From the point of view of Snooka. And then we we see him moving, like going around delivering the message. And then we see, 
you know, like each, each of the, it's almost like concentric circles moving toward a center point. Um, and each character inhabits a different circle that moves the story toward the, where it's going, which we don't know yet. Um, I thought when I read the back of the book, um, that it was going to be about something completely different. I pictured it more like a time to kill when some there's some kind of dramatic uh, racial tension and violence. A black man kills a white man, and then there's going to be some kind of or or like To Kill a Mockingbird too, or yeah, and then later yeah. there's going to be like some kind of legal ramification for it, like a trial or something like that. Which, by um, the way, is what the Sims, the other book that I read, is like. Mm-hmm. But it's about a man who killed his son. Oh, oh wow. So it's, and it's very short. It's like 150 pages. Um, I'm going to have to, I'm just going to go read, just I'll say right now, I'm going to read everything this man has ever written. He's a brilliant novelist and should be way more well-known than he is. It's a, a shame that he's not, um, unless I'm living under a rock. I think in uh, some circles, he's, his name is known, but. He, he should be very widely read if his other work is as, beautifully written as this so and it's just so tightly structured and I love that it's like um so (laughs) I I am not trying to do this I promise but I'm going to do it again um it reminds me of a medieval story which is uh Sir Gowan and the Green Knight um which is structured like a set of nesting boxes so it has this like outward framing device and then the story moves from the court into the journey into the country into a castle into the inner room of a castle and then back into the castle like so it goes in these concentric circles or nesting Hmm. boxes of structure and it's one of the most incredibly elegantly structured stories which is why it's so enduring Hmm. um it's I mean it's a really cool story but the structure of it like graduate students have studied this and found all these like mathematical connections it's really interesting sir gowan and the green knight um and and it feels hmm. very much like that like each there's a literal movement forward in the story and in geographical space in every chapter from a different perspective and i loved that and i found myself just paying attention to that and like just um that same sense that you have of like why watching Michael Jordan sink a shot, right? You're like, oh, this is a master at work. <laughs> I'm like being led along by this incredible structuring. So that was my they first make it comment. Look so I, easy. Right, exactly. And you respond to it even if you don't know you're responding to it. It feels very satisfying. Yeah. Um, and then my second comment was related to your other question, David, about why multiple voices. And I'm finding my so I'm moving from form and structure into content here. Um that what it's doing for me in reading it is this sense of sweeping grandeur of an entire culture, this oppressed culture, mm-hmm. um, but in very particular voices within a story that I'm learning about each individual person. And so it helps me understand mm. we're not just talking about one person's interpretation of racial tension, but an entire culture as represented by these multiple people that are embedded within it. And so it gives me a mm. sense of the, the, um, the uniformity of the oppression um, and the, the racism that's happening, that's being expressed here. Um, mm-hmm. But without it having to be some like big Epic and, and to make it very particular. And so I'm behind the eyes of each individual man. Mm. Okay. So, that, that brings up a question, though. 
my son, Lucas, is wandering around outside our little writing shed thing we have here. And he uh-huh. is every he's just like peeking in the windows around the corner until I look <laughs> at him. And then he like ducks out of the view. And then now I can hear him taking wood and putting it up against the building just to get my attention, I think. <laughs> oh, man, um, that kid. <laughs> He's uh, he spent the morning with me at the bookstore. He still needs my attention, kids. Um, kids. <laughs> so needy. I know. Okay, so speaking of kids, what I was going to say is this book begins not with an old man, not with any of the old men who are going to be gathered, but with a small child and women. So mm-hmm. we get, what is it? We get a small child, we get Snookum, and then we get three women before we ever meet any of the men. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think he does that? Hi, I mean, Heidi, Tim, obviously I'd like, to hear your answer too, but Heidi, I want to ask you first as a woman um, and, and based on what you're talking about here with the nesting boxes and so forth, do you think that is part of the nesting boxes structure that he seems to perhaps be borrowing? That is a great question because I'm realizing he moves from childhood into age even because it's our fourth mm. oh, year yeah, that's right. writer yeah. is the man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't and thought of, of it the, while reading. You've, got, you've yeah. got the kid, a younger woman, mm-hmm. an older woman, and then you're getting the men who are yes. roughly yes. the same age. Yeah. Um, and and there there is this sense of, like I said, the concentric circles ideas feels very much like a gathering, right? Like we're, we're like gathering everybody together. I'm making the gathering motion with my hand, right? Moving towards the center. Um, and it, I think it does make sense to kind of reflect that also in the development of the characters over gender and age. So hmm. I don't know if that's what he was thinking, but, and I hadn't thought of it until you asked, but it fits, right? Yeah, it does. It does. I was thinking, like the plot of our book is that a murder has been committed. Yeah, in media and that race. we know mm-hmm. that the thing that is terrifying to everybody is the possibility of a lynching. And so everyone in the book is concerned except for the person who is probably going to kind of like commit the lynching, Fix, who we haven't met yet. Um is concerned to not let this happen. And I think that the early part of the book, the young boy is kind of just, Snookum is just kind of, he doesn't really know what's going on. He knows what's going on, but I don't, I don't get the impression that he recognizes the, the gravity of it. He knows that a death is taking place, but my impression that Snookum And he only knows because really know. he saw, he wasn't told that. He saw the body. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he doesn't really know like what this could possibly mean, or at least I didn't pick up on him knowing what this could possibly mean. Then there are these conversations between these women and it seems like none of their responses have to do with like the possibility of meeting the threat of violence with a counter threat of violence. And then we meet these men and all of them, the thing that they have in common, aside from being black men, aside from being older is that they all have shotguns. So the possibility of countering violence with either violence or the threat of violence now kind of falls potentially to them. And so I don't know if that's necessarily, I don't know if that's necessarily an answer to why he started with a young boy and four women first, but it does seem like this kind of amalgamation of power 
in the hands of these older black men seems like it's going to be and the title of the book tells us that's going to be a real crucial element to the response about the murder. Well, to both your points, it strikes me that the information is getting revealed bit by bit to us in the mm-hmm. way that happens with a mystery, right? So we're used to reading books where a little bit at a time, something is revealed to us. And in this case, though, he's revealing it to us a bit by bit through these characters. But what makes it work so well and feel so natural and so satisfying, to use the term that I think you used, Heidi, is that each bit of information that's revealed is so in keeping and consistent with what that character would know or care about. Mm-hmm. So the first chapter, we are, we are given the scenario and we get just enough to know that there's a dead body and we get, we get the kid frantically running. So immediately the tone is chaotic. You know, we, we, we don't really know what's going on. We're with this character as he's running. He's literally spanking his own butt to get going like a horse, right? So we've got, it's all very much like a child. Then the next section is with Janie. And she she's beginning to interpret the information and give us a little bit more. And then we get an older woman and then we get candy. And, you know, so each bit is getting revealed, but only as much as would really be known and understood by that character. And I think that leads to a very satisfying process of gathering information for the reader so that by the time we get to the old men we have enough information to begin seeing for it to be meaningful when they're beginning to put together the strategy mm-hmm. although candy's obviously involved in the strategy too mm-hmm. but that's like really well done it yeah, seems really simple, really well done but pulling it off is complex skilled right. before we leave snookum um did you did you guys land were you curious about why chim chimley made such a big deal of him looking like a sissy he says well, it three or four times it was a different person but yes um wait it was a different, it was a different yeah it was a different um messenger messenger oh was it really yeah, it was a different boy who was the who was the do we have His the name, name of the other boy Lou. Yeah, or it's Sue or Lou. Um, yeah, hold on. I have it right here. But okay, your point def- is the yeah. sissy thing. Uh, does that change your question? Well, it does a little bit because there was few. nothing. It's few. few. Okay. Yep. It does change my He's the guy that question runs away. because I did not pick up anything in Snookum that would indicate like, you know, he was perceived to be. A sissy boy. A sissy boy. Yeah. And so I was like, what What are the others saying? Okay, but that answers it. If it's few, then that's a different One story. thing you're bringing up, though, Tim, that was maybe my favorite part of the writing is the repetition in the writing. Mm. I oh, yeah. loved it. It was just so, so beautiful. And it's really hard to pull off repeating phrases and words in the same paragraph. But he, but he just wrote it so beautifully. Um Emily finds an example that I wanted to point out. Um, There's a great one in the last chapter where the okay the minister Jameson is kind of begging them, um, and he says, uh, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He he turned back on the he turned back on the rest of the people. Go home, old fools. He said, "Old fools, go home." And mm-hmm. you know, it's not it's 
it's inverted. Like it's go home old fools and then old fools go home instead of go home old fools twice. But the way he does that is also, it, it doesn't feel it's like poetry, but it doesn't feel like he's trying to be poetic. Cause that's what people would say. Right. And though a yeah, lot of the characters right. speak in, in this, he, he makes poetry out of a sort of native language, a native diction that is often looked down upon. Mm. And so he's able to take, he's able to identify the virtues of this way of speaking and, and make, make poetry out of them. Make, they're like, they're like songs, you know, and they feel so natural and, and, and lived in. And that's something that is so, it's a way of speaking that for so long has been look, I I don't know what to say besides look down upon, you know, right. Considered lower class or whatever, but he makes it sing, man. I totally agree. On page seven, this was the first one I noticed um, that goes exactly to your point. And it's when uh, Snookum is running out. Um, He's just starting to run and he comes across Corinne and he says, I just ran through the house back in the kitchen. She was sitting at the table eating greens and rice out of a pan, eating by all by herself. She didn't have no children or a husband. She was just by herself eating and looking out of the back door. Mm. When I told her what Candy had said, she turned slowly to look at me and her eyes all brownish and tired looking. She didn't say a thing, didn't say uh uh-huh or nothing. Just sitting, just looked old and tired looking, eating on her front teeth, looking old and tired looking. That is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it captures the entire, like this, I feel like I know this woman, even though he just repeated several phrases about her Mm -hmm. and without anything new, right? He just says multiple times that she was eating by herself, looking old and tired looking. And even that is so descriptive, but the way he repeats it and then uh, the way that that woman then kind of represents the entire household and the, and, and the, and we get a glimpse into the culture and just the, the, like that defeated sense that we need to know once we get to the old men who are finally willing to take up arms and stand up against oppression, we already have these pictures of it in these little snippets that he's given us along the way. I just think it's masterful writing, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. so beautiful. And the repetition, he's, he did that several times that speaks to the native voice and to exactly what David's saying about the lived in piece. And then also he picks just the right things thematically to repeat so that we are unconsciously taking in this picture of this culture. Matt's wife says, you old fool, you old fool, you all gone crazy. And then he says something and then she says, you old fool, you old fool. I think she, I think she calls him an old fool a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I kept thinking and those dynamics with the women, um, the way they that um, they treated each other, the two women in those middle chapters, and then um, in that chapter that you just mentioned, that kept reminding me of uh, of their eyes were watching God. And the and mm. the idea of the the black woman being the mule for the oppressed men taking out their rage on her, and that like that's now reading that across multiple works of this time period and and this part of America, well, like different time periods, but different decades, yeah. but yeah. the same kind of exploration of the oppressed culture was just really powerful to me to see it in a different context in this yeah. book, having just read it and their eyes were watching God. Yeah. Which I think that's the purpose of literature. Now I have so, man, I'm just, 
yeah. Anyway, you mean like that's all. you're seeing these oppressed characters even yeah. in an oppressed world? Even yes. Among the, so the now I've taken oppressed. it in, and I don't live like that, right? And yeah. so to like my to put those together across multiple works, then I start, you know, all of us reading these things start to start to believe them. Not that we didn't the first time, but it sinks in when you read it over multiple works. You make that connection you know charlotte mason calls it the science of relations um and that you know gives us empathy and all the things that we we talked about over these podcasts um it's not about knowledge it's about wisdom right and and empathy and compassion and understanding and and i i definitely am getting that from this work alone but also making that connection um to their eyes we're watching god Mm -hmm. tim do you have a particular character that you know that we've met so far that you most like well, this is an indirect answer to the question. I'm most curious about what's going to happen with the pastor, the preacher who's, you know, saying... Whose point of view we haven't been inside yet. Right. And are we going to be inside his point of view? Do you know? I assume uh, so. I don't know. But I don't, I but I don't really know. Regardless, he's the only... He's the only masculine figure, I think, thus far, aside from maybe Snookum, who is really reluctant to kind of go to war. And one of the other characters says, you know, he'll come around eventually. And I wonder if he's going to come around. And I just, I, I just imagine, you know, like maybe this, this character's, the, the preacher's um, conviction is to be a peacemaker. I don't and think we do, by the way. Oh, we don't get his point of view. Which that's a, that tells us something in and of itself, probably. Yeah. So I'm curious about whether he is going to kind of like hold the two, let, let's assume, let's just call it like a peacemaking conviction, or if the circumstances of the murder and the counter push are going to change his conviction. You know, I wonder where he's going to be by the end of our novel. Yeah. Is there is there a character that you're particularly compelled by? So I really enjoyed the chapter from the perspective of shoot, what's her name? Miss um, Merle or Janie? Miss Merle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I liked her a lot. Um starts out with the pie. And one thing I loved salty. is you start you you start, that's where at the beginning of in Janie's chapter, you got where she came up. And so when Miss Merle came and so you saw her arriving from Janie's perspective and then the next chapter, you got her arriving from her own perspective because she's got the mm-hmm. pie. So it took you mm-hmm. a little bit back from before that. And then she arrives and tells her own particular version of things. And so I, I like how he's laying. He's, it's not just the particulars of this mystery, shall we say, but the individual movements of particular lives are being incorporated into it as well. She's making a pie. Matt and her, his wife are having a fight, you know, like, which is a, kind of dark actually. Um, and we can, we'll probably have to talk about some of that stuff as we go, but the, those particularities of those lives outside of what, for the lack of, you know, for the sake of conversation, I'm calling the mystery is really, really well done. So I really liked Mrs. Merle. What about you, Heidi? I was Matt for me. Um, I, and I think part of that, he's very complex already mm-hmm. um, because 
there's that tender moment between him and Chimley when they're fishing and he seems so there's this, there's this moral rectitude to him and this um, desire to finally have a voice that's just so moving to me. But then the juxtaposition of that and the violent darkness with which he treated his wife and um, just made him immediately very complex and um, yeah, like the, he's an enigma to me. And so I'm drawn to him. I, I wrote in the margin of one of the pages in that chapter that it's very confessional. So mm-hmm. he has a self-awareness about him too, about his own flaws and the ways he's treated her. And, um, you know, in contemporary times, we probably read that even differently than what, you know, even right. with, with even more disdain than what I think Ernest Gaines felt when he was writing this in the eighties. And I do think you're supposed right. to look at that as disdainful behavior. I agree, but you're right. There's the same assumption of violence towards the women from black men in this novel as there was in their eyes were watching God and in others that I've read. Yeah, 50 There's years an assumption later. of it and an acceptance of it that is profoundly different from the way we think of it and rightly so. But it, this was not that long ago. You know, this was 30 yeah, years place, ago. And it takes place in the 70s, yeah. Right. And so there's no... There, I, I, I don't hear in the narrator's voice the disdain towards that that we would rightly have, right? And um, so I but find Matt that really interesting and compelling to be, too. He does seem to be saying to her, "This is that the way I'm, the way I've treated you is not right." Yeah, he does. You're like, and there is a maybe it is that depth of self awareness that. Um, a little bit of he he seems to read himself and um and 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 have judgment in the right sense i don't mean necessarily condemning i don't mean that in the sense of condemning but in the sense of making right choices about the way you think about something that again i find very compelling in him and complex in him it's also hard given the restraints that ernest j gaines has put upon his narrative construction to really make a condemning statement about like kind of like the threat of violence against his wife, because everything that we get is coming from the character that's telling the story. Right. Mm-hmm. So the only way that we would kind of get um, a rebuke is from within the character himself or from some other character that sees what's going on and disapproves. So I wonder if there's going to be, if this is just like, the way that that character is, you know, he's kind of this bifurcated man. Like he does have this kind of like draw toward goodness, righteousness. He's going to stand up. He's going to, you know, finally have dignity. And at the same time, he's muttering all these threats against his wife that seem like they're pretty potent threats. And so I'm, I'm interested to know, like at the conclusion of the book, is this character going to be, is going to, is he going to remain a split character or is there going to be some sort of um, change, some sort of deeper recognition? Like, yeah, there's, there's some recognition about what he's doing, but it seems like to be satisfying, we might want to see more. Yeah. One, one of the things that, 
I think this book has done a really good job of so far. I think this builds on what you're saying, Tim, is showing us the layers, the the the, the timelessness of the I don't know if that's even the word of in, of the injustice that these people are living in. So there's the layers, you know, even these are black people who have who even look at each other with varying degrees of prejudice based on mm, how dark yeah, or how light yeah. they are. Um, but the which, by the, the way, just like the character late in their eyes were watching God, remember the character who, um, she has this whole kind of like, um, like tearing of African Americans oh, yeah. based on lineage. Remember her? She's just awful. And then we have another character like this, um, that shows up in this book. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you, David, but it's just another pattern that we're kind of like seeing between these two books. The, yeah. yeah. Well, I, so yeah, I mean, you've got the way they look at each other with varying degrees of prejudice. And each, you could pair off two individual people and they would look at each other with certain degrees of prejudice. And then you could pair those same people off with somebody else and they, it might not, there might not even be a logic to, to the way the prejudice reveals itself. And then you have the women and how they're treated by the men in that and the children. And then you've got, of course, um, there's diff, there's clearly, although where they're off, well, I guess we've met Candy. There are white characters that figure into it as well. And how they look, they each look at the black people in their community with varying degrees of prejudice. And then we get that really incredible scene in um, Grant Bellow, AKA Cherry's chapter where they're in the graveyard. Um, could, could yeah, we read this? Could so we read this? Bit? Yes. Yeah. What page is like it? 47 is the main part that I want to get to, but so they're in the graveyard. Um, why don't I start on 45 and read a couple pages because I think this is going to be a pretty crucial passage. My gut, my gut tells me. So I'll start, um, the, the, the last full paragraph on, well, no, like the, the middle of 45 and then I'll read a little bit and then Heidi, you can jump in and then Tim, you want to take us through 47? Okay. Towards the top of 45. We hadn't been there more than 10, 10, maybe 15 minutes when Jacob stood up and went inside the graveyard. I looked back over my shoulder and I seen him pulling weeds from Tessie's grave. Tessie was his sister. She was one of them great, big, pretty mulatto gals who messed around with the white men and the black man. The white men wanted her for all, all for, the, for themselves and they told her to stay away from the word but she didn't yep. listen and they killed her ran her through the quarters out into that saint charles river mardi gras day in 1947 but listen to this now her own people at the old mulatto place wouldn't even take her body home they was against her living here in the first place around the darker people i'm not dark myself i'm light as them but i'm not french not quality them they're quality them but they wouldn't even take her body home buried her with the kind she had lived with maybe that's why jacob was here today to make up for what he had done his sister over 30 years ago, or what had done his sister over 30 years ago. After pulling up the weeds, he knelt down at the head of the grave and made the sign of the cross. Next thing you know, every last one of us was in there visiting our people's graves. You had to walk in grass knee-high to reach some of the graves. The people usually cleaned up the graveyard if they had to bury somebody, or for Latoussaint. But nobody had been buried there in a good while, and Latoussaint wasn't for another month. So you had grass, weeds everywhere, pecans and acorns. You could feel them under your feet. You could hear them crack when you stepped on them. 
We went to our different little family plots, but we wasn't too sure about all the graves. If they had been put there the last 20, 30, 20, 20, 25 years, yes, then we could tell for sure. But say if they had been put there 40, 50 years ago, it was no way we could tell if we was looking at the right grave or the right person. Most of the graves after a while, it just shifted and mixed with all the others. Dirty Red was a little bit farther away from the rest of us, moreover in the corner. We had never mixed too well with his people. We thought they was too trifling, never doing anything for themselves. Dirty Red was the last one. Maybe that's why he was here today, to do something for all the others. But maybe that's why we was all there, to do something for the others. After I had knelt down and prayed over my own family plot, I wandered over to where Dirty Red was standing all by himself. He was eating a pecan and looking down at the weeds that covered the graves. Dirty Red hadn't knelt down or pulled one weed from one grave. Some of the graves was all sunk in. My brother gave there, Dirty Red said. I didn't know for sure what spot he was looking at because soon as he said it, he cracked another pecan with his teeth. Not cracking, sorry, not cracking a couple of them together in his hand, but cracking them one at a time with his teeth. My mom... Jude, my pa, Francois, right there, he said. I still didn't know for sure where he was looking. Uncle Ned, right in there, somewhere, he said. The whole place was all sunk in, and you had weeds everywhere, so I couldn't tell for sure where Dirty Red was looking. I never looked at his eyes to see if they shifted from one spot to another. But knowing Dirty Red, I figured they probably didn't. That would have been too much like work. Even to bat his eyes was too much work for Dirty Red. You got plenty of us in here, I said, looking around the graveyard. I could see Matt, Chimley, Yank, all of them standing near their people's graves. This where you want them to bring you? I asked Dirty Red. Might as well if he's still here, he said. If it's still here, he said. They getting rid of these old graveyards more and more, I said. These white folks coming up today don't have no respect for the dead. Dirty Red cracked another pecan with his teeth. Graveyard pecan always tastes good, he said. You tried any of them? I'll gather me up a few before we leave, I said. I looked down the the empty field. I looked down the empty field on the other side of the fence. The cane rows came up to 20 or 30 feet of the graveyard. Bo had cut and hauled the cane away, and I could see all the way back to the swamps. Them long, old, lonely cane rows took me back. I can tell you that. Him and Charlie had a chance to get out and get some of it done, I said to Dirty Red. He sure won't be getting no more done, Dirty Red said. What do you think of this, Dirty Red? I asked him. Well, I look at it this way, he said. How many more years I got here on this old earth? That was all he had to say. He stopped right there. Just like Dirty Red did not finish something. That would have taken too much of his strength, and him and his people believed in saving as much strength as they could. With that little time left, you thought you ought to do something worthwhile for your life? I asked, trying to coax him on. Something like that, he said. He ate another pecan. Your people would be, right, would be proud of you, Dirty Red. I reckon a lot of them in here are going to be proud of this day's over, he said. Might have had some, um, might have some of joining, might have some of us joining them too. You think it might come to that? That's up to fix, he said. He looked at me and grinned. Then he looked past me and nodded. Here comes Cladu and them. They came down the road where the old railroad tracks used to be. Cladu was in front 
with his gun on one hand and his shoebox under his left arm. Man, this is some good stuff. And it, it reminds me of, you know, in a movie before the big battle, you're going to have, it makes sense that they're contemplating eternity, right? You know, but it gets so much more than that. Um, there's so much more going on here. And, and, it's and like that family line, legacies also, yeah. it seems like are, they're at stake. That line, these, these white folks coming up today don't have no respect for the dead. When I read mm-hmm. that, I was just like, like they don't even have respect for people who are gone, right. you know, let alone people who are alive. Like mm. the, the depth of that insult, the depth of that prejudice, it goes under the, it like goes into the graves which they can't, yeah. which they don't care about, which they can't respect. The, lead, like to the point that there is like a placelessness to the eternity of these, right? Of their for their fathers. Right. That's really yeah. well said. Yeah. Terribly sad. You know, one of the other things I appreciate about this book is um, we know that fixes the great threat that's kind of on the horizon. Right. And we don't learn much about him except for through this little store. Well, the things we learn about him is that he's kind of in everybody's head. Mm-hmm. Everybody's concerned about what's going to happen when fix shows up. But the only kind of direct reporting that we get about him is the story about the fist fight between he and what's the character's name, Matthew, Matthew, um, which is kind of contributing toward this potential threat that Fix is going to bring that he and Matthew don't do not like each other whatsoever. And I think it's really interesting that Matthew is the only one, am I right, thus far, who has kind of stood up to him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? he specifically says that in the yeah. narrative too, that he's yeah. the only one. So that narrative about their fist fight, because... Fix wanted Matthew to do something for him. And Matthew was just like, no, I'm not your servant, you know? And it just went haywire from there. So this bad blood is now, it kind of like has to be dealt with. And everybody's already kind of like figuring out what side they're going to be on. And And we still don't know even what happened, which is interesting. Right, right. Like he's just, again, there's this, carefully and elegantly structured narrative that gives us enough to keep us interested while still keeping kind of the main mystery of the story in the future. And that's what we're heading towards. So even though in the novel, we're looking back, it's a memory novel, still the thrust of the energy of the novel is always moving us Mm. forward. And it strikes me that nobody who's, none of these men know what happened either. Mm -hmm, Right. But they're going anyway. Like they haven't heard the story yet. Mm Mm-hmm sure some of them by the time we get the ones that are already there when this little group arrives probably have learned something Mm. but so far we we're pretty sure that candy who is plotting has some knowledge and matthew but otherwise they there's like a it doesn't matter what happened right doesn't matter how guilty he was at this point because there's there's history to stand up to Right. Exactly. Like they're standing up for Matthew because Matthew's the only one that's ever stood up to fix. 
And they're also standing up for themselves for the first time. And, and it's like such a communal novel. Like it's the gathering of these old men. And I love that. I love that communal feeling, the feeling of, of being brought together for a collective, a collective stand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we are at an hour. Let's do, let's do some final thoughts, I suppose. Unless either of you have a particular passage you would like to read before we do that. All right, uh, Tim, you want to do some final thoughts for you first? I'm just, I'm curious about the, the nature of the threat um, that's going to come from Fix because it's false to look at this as it's a gathering of old men with shotguns versus just one person. Because Fix is kind of emblematic of kind of like the, the totality of oppression that's existed in this place for, you know, hundreds of years. So I'm curious about how our author is going to convey the breadth and depth of the threat brought against the men who are going to stand up against Fix. What about you, Heidi? I think I am, a, I'm, I'm thinking about the title, which I think is brilliant. The more that I'm getting to know this novel and I haven't read ahead. Um, that it took me a minute. Like I was on the chapter with Chimley before when he specifically tells his age and he says, I'm 71 years old. And I was like, Oh, I get it. <laughs> They're about to gather all They're these old actually men. actually old. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. I loved it. And because, and I like the title a lot because a gathering is both a noun and a verb. And so it's something that they're doing and it's also something that they are. And, and I think that's this, I'm been just been meditating on that since I read yesterday, um, that there's, you know, there's something worth saving here. There's something worth gathering here that the, for me so far, the, uh, like my eyes are not set on the justice versus the injustice of what Matthew did. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that's not so far the focus of the novel. The focus of the novel is on the gathering. The fact that these people are willing to die for their friends and for themselves uh, as kind of a final, a first and final stand uh, of a communal stand for justice. It's not so much of, you know, like I said, it's not a time to kill when the emphasis is like, should he or should he not have, you know, revenged his his daughter. It's not that. It's more. It's more this looking at the gathering itself, the act of gathering and the noun of got the being of being a gathering. Mm. And I just love that, especially that it is old men, that it's um, people who have lived a long life under the weight of this in, embedded oppression mm. um, and are, you know, wanting, wanting to go out with a bang, maybe literally. I just think it's really lovely that the emphasis on the communal and, and that sense of gathering. Mm. That makes me think I'm going to be looking for people who are inside and outside of the gathering. Hmm. Like, oh, are there going to be people who we, who we would have thought should be inside, but maybe are left outside? Um, is there an, like, what is the organism that is this gathering? the noun version of this gathering. Like, what is it made up of? Who's left out? Who's part of it? Um, hmm. and, and what does that mean 
for what the book is trying to tell us. But also, I'm just really like loving the the drama of it as well. Mm-hmm. Meeting these really interesting characters, the language, and finding out what the the mystery, like the like what actually happened. <laughs> right. right, right. Just um, the craft we... is just stunning. Like yeah. especially yeah. after Duncow, which we had some questions about the craft. I, you know, some people really it was very different. Yes, it's a very, very different novel, and some people loved the content. But if you're looking at the craft, it isn't what this novel is so far. And I'm I'm really loving the craft. All right. Do you want to end? Are we going to end there? Wait, are we ending with that shot against Duncalf fans? No, because I <laughs> was the one. I was the one. Def- you were the okay. Dun. The, uh, no, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Now you were the all Duncalf. I got her worked yeah. up. <laughs> Yeah. What'd you say, Tim? She was the Duncow apologist. Yeah. Well, I was. And um, I just uh, wanted to to throw that in there just to just yeah. to see if we could get Heidi sitting in her car. She's sitting in her car, by the way. Get her. This is uh, so much. I love you, people. You, you guys remember how at the beginning of like COVID, when I was like working from home and everybody was. We would just keep recording in weird spots. Like I'd have to drive yes. down to the, to the, the dank basement to, and yeah, you in the, the dank car. Basement. Yep. And, yep. Yep. Feels like we're back to that. Heidi's in a car. This is me. Yeah. My Wi-Fi is out at my house. And so I just drove down the road to get um, some data. So mm. this is just me, me, me and my car. <laughs> a, a lady just drove by and asked me if I was okay, which was nice of her. So And you said, I'm just I'm recording fine. a podcast. I'm yeah. great. And you just like slipped a little postcard out this like close reads. Here's how you can find it. <laughs> you can, here, join the Facebook group. Speaking I of which, do that. just be at the ready at all points. Time. Speaking of which, if you want to join the conversation on the Facebook page, you can do that. Just search Close Reads discussion group in the, uh, in the search bar on Facebook. There's lots of us over there leaving comments, trading barbs, posting <laughs> links. What other things do we do on that group? Um, being enthusiastic about things. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also, of course, email us podcasts at goldberrybooks.com. And we have the Instagram page. We have Patreon, where as Tim mentioned earlier, we were discussing Anna Karenina. We're going to be finishing up part one uh, early next week. Some really high quality books that we've been reading. I just want to just mention that. Really good experience. Word. Reading experiences this year. And then Tim, the plays the thing. What's happening over on the plays the thing? We've got the final two episodes of The Taming of the Shrew coming up. And then after that, we're going to do a couple of special solo Tim episodes. That's just about Shakespeare. Kind of an introduction to Shakespeare for those who are maybe a little bit intimidated and also those who um, want to kind of like a big picture vision of his work as a dramatist. Don't let Tim fool you. He's really doing a one-man play version of... Two Gentlemen of Verona. Ooh, and no. uh, Tim, could you give us a little bit of a taste of your no, best female character? No, no you say, oh, he's saving it for the show. He's I'm saving, saving the show. All, all of his previews of, for his one man show. Uh, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that and let people think that that's possible that Tim might one day do a one man show on the podcast. I think that's what we call setting one up for failure. <laughs> think maybe backing you into a corner why are you assuming failure you're a very talented thespian well i think i'm assuming failure because that's not actually what i'm gonna do (laughs) okay (laughs) fair enough i was thinking the other day it'd be really funny if you did a one-man uh 
recording of Pygmalion. And oh. it was just you doing voices for each of the characters, but each we had to have like a distinct voice for it. I'd love to to know how you would how you would do with that. I'd love to know that too. <laughs> <laughs> when you come next week, we'll have to we'll just do some trials. We'll see how that goes. Okay, great. That sounds great. <laughs> this is a brainstorming session. Exactly. All right. Well, to everyone who's listening, thanks so much for for doing so. If you are a Patreon subscriber, we pre- really appreciate that. And um, if you are just leaving reviews and all that kind of stuff. I just, every now and then I want to drop a little thank you out there for, for people who have been doing that and supporting the show, some of you for a lot of years. So every now and then, especially when we start a new book, I like to just say thank you for uh, coming along with us on another reading journey. So uh, with that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.